I'm going to continue this evening where I left off the night before last and try to go into more uh, detail and hopefully more depth regarding the structure of this central uh, doctrine in Buddhism, that of the four ennobling truths. Just to recapitulate a little, um, these four truths um, are not to be taken as four uh, propositions to believe. In other words, a kind of Buddhist credo. I believe there is dukkha or suffering. I believe the cause of suffering is craving. I believe there is a cessation of suffering and I believe there is an eightfold path. But rather, the Buddha presented these as uh, four injunctions, four things to do rather than four things to believe. And we ended the talk before with the metaphor or the parable of the arrow. The person who has been shot by an arrow is bleeding to death and wants to know whether the feathers in the arrow came from a crow or a vulture. And similarly, the Buddha discarded, put very much to one side, the questions that we would usually consider to be um, metaphysical or religious questions. What is the nature of this universe? Does it have a beginning? Does it have an end? Are the mind and the body the same or different? Does the Buddha exist after death or not? And I think we can add to that any number of um, similar conundra that seem to survive despite hundreds of brilliant minds putting all their attention to them. I think a contemporary addition would be, is everything determined or do we have free will? The Buddha doesn't mention that, but it would seem to me to be of the same order as the others. In other words, it has to do with one of these big questions, and I don't want to dismiss these as having any philosophical uh, importance. I think they are very crucial things to explore, but somehow they're not really what the Buddha was concerned with. As he said uh, many times, he said, I teach uh, dukkha, suffering, and the ending of dukkha. The, the point is not to speculate about how things came to be the way they are, but rather to do something about it. So rather than uh, theorize, we need to find a method, a means, a practice, a path, whereby we can take the arrow out. Everything else, in a way, is a secondary concern, and one that he described as not conducive to the practice of the path. And yet, of course, as human beings, uh, these are the sorts of questions that will probably never go away. And yet it is important, I think, 
um, to, to be clear about what the Buddha was primarily concerned about was a way of life which entailed pretty much everything to do with being human, but which was concerned primarily, perhaps even exclusively, with resolving the whole question of human suffering. And in fact, it's rather striking, particularly when we compare the Buddha's teachings with um, the Upanishads, which were the dominant um, religious thinking or philosophy of his day, which are very much concerned with the origins of the world, how the world came to be the way it is. That's a theme that runs constantly through these texts. They are uh, interested in questions of cosmogony, how the cosmos came about. And the Buddha seems to put that entirely to one side and to focus his attention on the suffering human person. And how does one respond authentically to the question of dukkha, of suffering? And so if we think of the four truths uh, from that perspective, we can summarize them quite um, succinctly as four injunctions or suggestions fully know suffering, let go of grasping, experience stopping or cessation, and create a path. And these are not four independent injunctions, four different things to do, but they are intimately tied and related one to the other. They are, as I also mentioned last time, a translation or a conversion of the principle of conditioned arising into a form of praxis, something we do, so that knowing suffering is what leads organically and naturally to a release of a certain hold or grasp we have on things. And that hold or grasp, when it starts to be released, sets in motion the possibility of that way of being in the world actually coming to a stop, perhaps only momentarily but nonetheless allowing the possibility of a new beginning. And that new beginning is the path itself. So let's just go over each of those four steps and try to see exactly what is being meant here. So the first suggestion is fully know Dukkha, fully no suffering. Again, I think in, in these kind of core um, uh, texts, each word carries a very uh, particular weight. They're not, this language is very concise and very specific, 
he doesn't just say no suffering. He puts an emphatic parinya, fully or totally, completely no suffering. Now there are two things here that have to be, uh, as it were, spelt out or um, teased out. First of all, what do we mean by dukkha, suffering? And secondly, what does it mean to fully know suffering? Neither, when we start to look into it a bit more closely, is perhaps quite as obvious as it might seem. Now this word dukkha is used um, very widely in Buddhism. Um, It often gives people the impression that the Buddhists are a real miserable lot. All they're interested in is dukkha. And then to fully know dukkha, that must entail a high degree of masochistic um, self-regard. And often it's thought that that's somehow the... um, somehow the primary aim of the exercise. Um, but that's really, I think, a rather superficial reading of it. And also, it's taking that idea of dukkha out of context. The question that in, is more interesting is, why should we fully know dukkha? What's that going to do for us? How can that help? And again, it's an example I think a very good example of the counterintuitive nature of what the Buddha was doing. And this is very counterintuitive. He's basically saying, so you want to be happy. Okay, this is what you do. You fully know suffering. Doesn't seem to be what you would expect to hear. But the fully knowing suffering is the first uh, phase in the opening up of uh, a way of life, a way of being. So we need to look at this a little bit more carefully. Now the word dukkha, in some ways, is very difficult to translate into English because there's no single word in English that conveys the range of meanings that the word dukkha carries. Now it's quite true, and I think Martin probably mentioned this this morning, that dukkha does mean pain. If I um, tread on, if someone treads on my foot, I get a good shot of dukkha in my toe. And dukkha is opposed to sukha, which means happiness. And these are very close to what in English we would call pleasure and pain. So in other words, dukkha does mean a kind of uh, subjective experience that we regard as painful. But I think it's also the case that the Buddha is not particularly concerned with, let's say, physical pain, having a headache or uh, a stubbed toe. That, as we saw in the text itself, he says birth is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, Old age is dukkha. Death is dukkha. In other words, he's understanding dukkha as a kind of existential pain. One might call it, um, as I've translated it, anguish. Uh, Perhaps we find this in, in some of 
the existentialist philosophers, the notion of angst, a kind of deep-seated sense of malaise, of being ill at ease in this world. And in some ways, that dukkha is simply what it feels like when we wake up to the fact that our existence is profoundly contingent. In other words, we're thrown into this world. As far as we know, we didn't ask to be here. It's just that at a certain point as we grow up, we, we sometimes have those moments when we are rather shocked to recognize that I'm here. This is it. And the only certainty that we have regarding what is going to happen next is that at one point I'm going to be evicted. I'm going to die. And that could be at any moment. And that the world is a profoundly unstable, unpredictable and uncontrollable place. We have a modicum of control given our our privileges, given the kind of health we have, the sort of social uh, structures in place and so on. But these are very temporary um, uh, conditions that can't really uh, protect us against the, uh, the ultimate end of our life, which is death. And I think one of the great attractions of theories of, of future lives and heaven and so forth is that it gives us a glimmer of hope that we won't die. And the Buddha too, as I'm sure many of you are aware, seem to have taken on board that Indian view. But we have to remember that rebirth in uh, Buddhism is not seen as a solution to the problem of death. Rebirth is actually the problem itself. That as long as we keep going round and round from birth to death, we're caught in this same uh, cycle. We're just repeating the same mistakes, perhaps. So it's, 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 it's ironic that sometimes here in the West we think of rebirth as a kind of uh, doctrine of, of consolation. That's certainly not how the Buddha saw it. But dukkha, therefore, if we take out theories of rebirth and karma and so on, which I'm going to do, and try to understand what these four truths would mean within our present experience here and now, irrespective of any theories of past and future lives and so forth and so on, and there I think these ideas come most fully into their own, then dukkha is very much that uh, that, that primary sense of unease, of uncertainty, of uh, anguish, of anxiety um, that grips us in those moments when our very sense of being here, our very sense of who we are is strangely unsettling, uncomfortable, not in a, in, in a, in a, in a grossly painful way, but in a, in a rather deep-seated um, uh, feeling of, of unease. So that's one sense of dukkha. But dukkha also is used by the Buddha um, in a rather different sense. He says, again, 
in a well-known passage that that sabasankara dukkha, that all conditions are dukkha. Now here he's raised dukkha to um, the level of, of what we sometimes call ontology. In other words, it's a characteristic of existence itself that things are dukkha. This microphone, we've had some trouble with it. It's dukkha. In what way, though? What does that mean? It obviously doesn't mean that if I, um, if, if I throw the comp- microphone against the wall, it's going to scream in pain. might make a rather screechy noise in the, amp- in, in the uh, loudspeakers, but it doesn't suffer in that subjective sense. So in what way then did the Buddha describe the conditions of the world as dukkha? I understand this to mean that there's nothing in the conditioned, transient, phenomenal world that can ultimately be relied upon to resolve that deep sense of existential unease. That conditioned things are impermanent, they change, and although they might provide us for lesser and greater periods of time satisfaction and uh, a sense of well-being, in the end they will fail us. Either they will break down, or they will be stolen, or they will be destroyed in some way, or if not, we will be taken from them. There's one image that always haunts me in this regard, and that is the image of um, Aristotle Onassis, a well-known Buddhist, who, (laughs) who, when he was lying on his deathbed, was surrounded by something like 20 or 30 doctors, desperately trying to keep this old guy alive. And... uh, it's, I don't know why that image has stayed with me, but it somehow captures that sense that no matter how hard we hold on, and I think Aristotle Onassis held on pretty hard, <laughs> in the end, we're taken away. So you have a sense that um, Dukkha, therefore, is speaking about what one might call the, uh, the essential unreliability of things, the undependability of things, the fact that things cannot live up to what they sometimes seem to promise. And I think a very good illustration of this in our day and age is the advertising industry who I think understand this extremely well, in the way that they are able to um, develop, year after year, highly compelling images of a jar of coffee or the latest um, Apple Power Book or whatever it is that you, you are taken by and project them Imagistically, through television, through media, through magazines, and so on, as, as somehow 
radiating a kind of allure, a kind of uh, seductiveness that is almost irresistible. And I suspect we've probably had this experience every now and again. We probably look at the TV and look at these things and think, well, this is so silly. How anybody could be taken in by that advert. And yet, there's going to be one that will come along where you'll say, hmm, <laughs> actually, that's not bad. <laughs> I might give that one a go. And... Um, what they're doing is basically seducing us to... They're awakening in that instinctive longing we have for something in this world that will satisfy us in an almost existential way. What's very revealing, I find, is to go up into your attic and go through some old magazines, say, going back to the 50s or 60s, or even actually two or three years ago, and looking at the adverts, and looking at these things and saying, how would anybody have ever wanted that? Things, they, they look klutzy, they look ugly, they look kind of terribly dated, they might have a kind of a, kind of a kitsch-like charm, sort of retro thing, you could probably remarket some of them but basically you can't quite get why such a representation of that object would have been so alluring but presumably it was just as alluring then as the latest glossy image is to you now and so in other words the whole system and we're talking here really of, of consumerism, of capitalism is about um, uh, c continuously um, inciting that thirst, that desire for the thing you don't have that will somehow fill that gap. That craving or thirst, I mean, this second truth, the Buddha speaks of this word tanha, means thirst. And thirst is a state in which we're basically not fulfilled, there's something missing and consumerism is endlessly trying to convince us that if we have this thing or that thing or the other thing, that lack will be filled and yet we know full well I remember when I got my first Apple Powerbook it really looked very very cool and sexy when I had it for the first few days but after a while, it started getting dusty and a little bit scruffy. And then the new model came out. And very quickly, it began to look a bit passé. <laughs> now, I think the psychology of this is very, very revealing. And although, in some ways, it might be a little superficial, I think it tells us something about ourselves. And it shows the extent to which we are locked into, or we are very susceptible to marketing and so on. So dukkha is, uh, to, to fully know dukkha, is to become more and more alert to these uh, tricksterish uh, strategies that are imposed upon us, to not be fooled by them. 
So dukkha, as we can already see, has is, 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 is moved a long way from just the simple idea of pain. It has to do with physical mental pain. It has to do with, and I think more importantly, with this whole idea of existential unease. And again, remember, in the legend of the Buddha, he goes out of the palace, he encounters a corpse, he encounters an old person, a sick person. And in each, on each occasion... He turns to his charioteer and he says, will this happen to everyone? And the charioteer says, oh yes. In other words, he's, it's, what, 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 what that is pointing to are those moments in our life when we somehow wake up, when our eyes are opened for the first time to the fact that this condition actually has something to do with me, that I am knit into birth, sickness, aging, death. Again, it's very easy to say that. It's very easy to read it. It's actually quite difficult to, to fully know it. To fully know it. And that's what the Buddha is asking, is to fully know that. So what does it mean, fully? It's here, I feel, that we move into... Um, another mode of knowing, of awareness. And effectively what we've been trying to do during this week with these different forms of meditative awareness are all about fully knowing dukkha. The practice of vipassana in the wider sense of intense seeing, be it through mindfulness, be it through reflection, be it through uh, Zen practice, they're all about trying to pierce that veil of complacency, that sense that everything's really okay, and opening our eyes for the first time, again and again, to what is actually going on. And hence, vipassana, or insight, being not just about noticing the breath and the sensations and the sounds, which can focus our attention, bring us to a degree of calm. But vipassana, vipassana, only begins when we start to attend to the nature of these things, that they're changing, that they're dukkha, that they're not essentially me or mine. They are impersonal processes that come and go. In... Um, uh, in, in some of the Buddhist traditions, when they talk of the first ennobling truth, in other words, dukkha, dukkha is, is expanded into four different aspects. Impermanence, dukkha itself, not self or selflessness, and emptiness, emptiness of any in, intrinsic, essential identity. So, the meditation or the reflection on dukkha goes beyond just the idea of pain or anguish or unreliability. Dukkha, in fact, is really just a kind of a code, a kind of a, 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 a device, a word, to evoke our experience of the conditions of existence um, in all their aspects. So to fully know dukkha is to open our eyes and our hearts and our ears and our senses to 
the conditioned world. In other words, the world that is constantly bombarding our senses, that is constantly pouring forth from within our bodies and our minds to open ourselves to that totally and to see it for what it is. It's difficult to fully know dukkha because it can be very uncomfortable, it can be very threatening, it can be very um, destabilizing. And that's one of the reasons why Vipassana is always conjoined with shamatha. In other words, this, this seeing requires a stability of mind. We need to stabilize our attention. And that stabilization, again, is not just about becoming proficient in a technique of concentration. It also has to do with our ethical relationship to the world as well. In other words, to be somehow attuned to the world of others, to live a life in which we feel we have integrity, in which we feel um, we're doing, as it were, uh, as you know, good in this world. We're not deceiving people. We're not ripping people off. We're not hurting people. That is also part of the condition that enables a stability of mind. And then within that, we're able to refine our attention to be more focused. We're less prone to being shaky inside. And so the Buddha speaks of sila, samadhi, panya, ethics, concentration, and then panya, intelligence. So vipassana, insight, panya, intelligence, parinya, fully knowing. All of these are really talking about the same thing. But of course another aspect of dukkha, of suffering, is that it opens us up to the suffering of the world. That although we might experience anguish, we might experience pain, and when we do so, it often withdraw, it, it closes us down. We become utterly and understandably preoccupied with our own pain. And yet as we still ourselves and open up our minds, we, we certainly... Uh, experience that perhaps more fully and more deeply but also as our grasping our habits begin to diminish we become more sensitized to the suffering of others that suffering is not just mine at all in fact our suffering is really rather insignificant compared to the suffering of others the suffering of human beings, of animals, of the world itself. The world is um, exhibiting pain in all manner of forms and shapes and sizes. So I think if we take this idea of fully knowing dukkha, we also are moving out of our own problems and opening ourselves up to the pain of the world. Another aspect of fully knowing dukkha, and this might sound even more paradoxical, 
is that I feel it opens us up to the beauty of the world. And in some regards, I feel that um, the appreciation of beauty has a great deal to do with a recognition of the transience of things, um, the breakdown of things, the sense of loss, the sense of tragedy that is built into life. And there's something about that which puts us in touch with a deep aesthetic sense. Now, to give examples, I find, for example, in music and in art and in theatre and in literature, the most the passages that move me most deeply that I would consider to somehow reach a strange kind of poignancy in their insights into our condition have to do with the depiction of suffering. Be it the, uh, the adagio, the slow movements within um, a string quartet or a symphony, or be it, say, for example, the self-portraits of Rembrandt, or in, 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 in Japanese art, the self-portraits of, of Hakuin. When you look into the eyes of Rembrandt um, in the later portraits, there's something profoundly beautiful in there, but also exquisitely anguished. Vermeer also, I find. There's not, it's not beauty in, in, in the sense of pretty or dec- decorative or nice. But there's something that gives beauty an almost anguished depth. And so this, par- this dukkha parinya, fully knowing dukkha, opens up the world in a way that at some level we intuitively already sense. And yet here we're trying to cultivate a praxis, a practice, um, that refines that sensibility. And again, I think it's a, it's a pity in a way that Buddhism tends to be um, you know, rather dogmatic about this dukkha as just to do with certain forms of physical and mental pain. Experientially, what I have found is that as I pursue this, um, uh, this, this way of looking, this way of seeing, this way of listening, it opens up the world in, in all of these different aspects. And this fully knowing, therefore, um, begins, as it were, to change us. We're perhaps less prone to be um, interested in superficial distractions or entertainments, that we begin to think more deeply about things, more carefully. We begin to acknowledge our own limitations, our own failings. And in doing so, there's not a sense of failure or loss, but rather a sense almost of wonder of the strangeness of things, of the mysteriousness of things, of the, of the preciousness of things, that they're not going to be here for long. 
that the beauty of nature is in many ways to do with the fact that it is ephemeral. Ajahn Sumedho, who's a monk, an American monk who lives in England, he gives the example of, of sometimes nowadays you go into, say, a person's house or a restaurant and you see on a table a beautiful vase of flowers and you go towards them and then you wonder and you say, are they real or are they fake? And you, sometimes they're so good now. They even do little plastic drops of water on the leaves. And you, you, sometimes I actually rub the leaf to, to, to check. And when I realize it's a fake, I feel disappointed. I feel somehow let down. And yet, logically, if what we really wanted was something permanent, then I should be happy about that. That flower is not going to go yucky and brown and leave rotting petals over my nice mahogany table surface. But it doesn't, it doesn't do the trick. It doesn't have that beauty of a flower that will fade. The Japanese poetry is very good on this. The haikus, you know, the cherry blossoms and the autumn leaves. They're all about a sense of beauty that is utterly... Um, uh, uh, caught up in a sense of poignancy and transience and loss. Now, how does that affect us? I think it affects us in the sense that we don't hold on to the world in the same way anymore. We less and less are liable to indulge this idea, well, if I had that, and if I had that, no, I could get that, if I possessed this, if I lived there, if I, what the mind does a lot of the time, when we see the world in this way, as transient, as poignant, as ephemeral, as kind of, you know, this shared uh, tragedy that we live in so many ways, there's less and less a predisposition to want to own it and control it and make it mine and grasp it to myself. And that is what is meant, I believe, by the second truth, which is let go of grasping. So letting go of grasping or craving, the second truth is, is that of craving, grasping. And the injunction is let go of grasping, relinquish craving. Now again, if we take that as a simple instruction, to be honest, it doesn't make much sense. You've probably been on a retreat or you've heard Buddhist teachers say, when you come to them with your problems and you say, I can't get rid of this terrible, worrious anxiety I have about X, Y, or Z. And the teacher looks at you with infinite compassion and says, just let go. <laughs> and you think, well, of course, yes. But how do I do that? How do I let go? Is there some sort of magic off switch in my brain somewhere? <laughs> Click and it's gone. 
the whole idea that you can willfully let go is actually an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. If you're willfully trying to do something, you're definitely not letting go of anything. Letting go is, is a dropping away. In fact, Dogen, the 13th century Japanese Soto master, describes his awakening in terms of the, the dropping away of body and mind. Something falls away. That's not something you can volitionally do. I can't tell you, okay, I'm going to count to three, and on the count of three, we're going to stop being egotistic. You can't do it. It's impossible. So is this injunction, therefore, actually not just some kind of trick? And if not, then what does it mean? I think the answer lies in understanding that the letting go of grasping is the consequence, is the result of fully knowing suffering. Suffering, of course, in its widest sense. When we come really to be in the world from that perspective that I described, then grasping and craving really just don't have any place anymore. We've kind of seen through that. That um, we now know, we don't just believe, we now know that the notion of just endlessly craving to possess things and have things be they objects or people or beliefs or ideas, is not actually going to work. And when we know that, then craving, grasping, no longer really have any place. They fall away. There's a dropping off. And again, I'm sure at some level we experience this perhaps in meditation, perhaps in other contexts in our lives. I don't want to make this into some kind of exclusive Buddhist thing. I feel this is a, a, a relatively intelligible and understandable human experience. Whatever culture, whatever religion you might have, there's something about the wise person the saintly person who both knows things deeply and at the same time also does not have that clutchy, graspy clinging onto things. These are not two separate qualities. One gives birth to the next. They are inseparable. Yet when we describe this as a path, as a practice, it's useful to think of this in a progressive sequence. And we also see within it that this is again following the principle of conditioned arising. As the Buddha summarizes it most succinctly, when this is, that comes to be. When this is not, that does not come to be. When there is the fully, when fully knowing suffering is, letting go of grasping comes to be. 
is the same principle played out now, not in the abstract, but in the concrete, in our actual felt experience. One of the metaphors the Buddha uses um, to, to explain this, he says it's like a child who loses interest in making sandcastles. And again, this is a common experience. We perhaps spend some years as a young child going to the beach every year and building the sandcastles and trying to keep the sea at bay and so forth and so on. We're totally involved in it. And then one year, when we've grown up a bit, perhaps, or when our interests have moved on, it's just not something we want to do anymore. We don't have to make some, um, you know, some heroic act of renunciation. You know, this year, I'm not going to build any sandcastles. That's for little kids. I'm not going to do that anymore. It's terribly tempting, but I ain't going to do it. <laughs> you just don't do it. It's no longer, it's no longer interesting. I can remember one of my earliest memories as a young child. Um, I can remember this very vividly. I must have been five or six years old. And I had all of my toy cars and other bits and pieces lined up in front of me. And I remember think, saying to myself, I will always enjoy these things. <laughs> these things are so fantastic. And yet, of course, now, if you lined up those cars in front of me, it wouldn't do a great deal. <laughs> and you get the... There's also... I don't know whether you find this in the Pali. You certainly find it in the, in the, in the Tibetan uh, language. There's this notion that this, this path is actually about growing up. It's about becoming adult. And sometimes uh, in some of the texts they talk of um, the, uh, the children, the childish, let's say. Um, and the, we need to somehow let, as I think it says in St. Paul, one needs to let go of childish things, or something like that. It is about a process of maturation, a process of, of, of maturity, but maturity is, um, is the falling away of a particular mode of being in the world. And we spoke in the very first talk I gave of how people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. And it is hard for such people to see this ground. This conditions that. Conditioned arising. So we move from our place, our ego, you know, our rather neurotic little cell of me, into another space, into another ground, this ground which is constantly unfolding and vanishing and reappearing, on which there is nothing ultimately to stand. There is just unfolding, playing out of conditions endlessly. And so this path, these four truths, are really operative purely within the causal and phenomenal world. The Buddha never speaks of any kind of ultimate ground, any equivalent to what in other traditions would be called God or the absolute truth. These words are totally alien to the early texts. It's a 
it's, it's an understanding of the world that's concerned entirely with its phenomenality, with its process, with its unfolding, and within that, extraordinary possibilities for growth and change. Now we can also begin to see how in, when craving and grasping fall away, that that will become the condition for their stopping. So again, when the third truth says experience cessation, again, it's not a command, experience cessation now, but rather it's saying that fully knowing Suffering will lead to the letting go or the releasing of grasping and the releasing of grasping will lead to moments in which it's no longer operative. It stops. And that is nibbana, nirvana, peace. The peace that passeth understanding. In Christianity. That's the moment at which we know for ourselves that we can live in this world from another perspective altogether. Not one that is predicated on I want and I don't want and I like this and I don't like that and I got to get that and if I don't get this things are going to go terribly bad. But rather from a space in which all of that, that conflagration of clinging has died down. Now, again, the Buddha is realistic enough as a psychologist not to suggest that once you have that moment of stopping, you'll never start grasping again. Uh -uh, it doesn't work like that. These, are, they, these moments are almost like fissures, breaks, gaps in the process of, of habitual behavior. They're openings. In Zen, they call them you know, breakthroughs, kenshul, uh, flashes. It may only last for a very short period of time. And this is one thing all of the Buddhist traditions, the Theravada, the Tibetans, the Zen people, are entirely in accordance with. That these moments of stopping, of a, sometimes you might even call it awakening or something, these are, are, are just gaps. They are flashes. They are eruptions of what is habitually the case. And they may be extraordinarily meaningful for you, but they will also pass on. They won't last for very long. I mean, again, this is, not, there's no, this is not rocket science. Some people seem to, to persist in these conditions for some time. But the Buddha did not see that experience as anything permanent, but simply a kind of opening of the mind to another possibility. In one of the Tibetan texts I studied around this, it said that these moments last for as long as it takes 16 goats to cross a string bridge. 
Now, I guess it depends on how, how long the bridge is and how big the goats are. <laughs> but um, clearly, it means not very long. Not very long. And then we're back where, in a sense, we started with all the old habits of mind kicking in again, but with a crucial difference. Because now we're not, we're not taken in by it. We now know that although I keep wanting this and not wanting that and so forth and so on, we know that that's in a way just the play of the mind. That we've had this experience now that enables us not to really believe in it, even though it might still be happening with some force. There are a number of um, uh, things the Buddha says about such a person who's had this experience. One is that they no longer have this innate conviction in the reality of the ego. That doesn't mean that they don't have an ego. It means that they're more playful with it. They're more suspicious of its games. They're able to be ironic about themselves not to take themselves quite so seriously. The second thing is that one no longer um, is convinced uh, in in the effectiveness of rites and rituals. In other words, you realize that the spiritual path or the path of, let's say, growing up in this sense is not really got anything essential to do with the performance of certain rites. Now, obviously, at his time, this refers to the Brahmanic sacrifices and the lighting of the fires and so forth and so on. But clearly, it refers to the sense that we realize now that the practice of religion or spirituality is not about some external activity, you know, lighting candles on an altar or whatever, although that could still be a very positive thing. But that is not of the essence. That's a support at best. And that we can, in fact, do without all of that. And the third thing that goes is doubt. In other words, not, you know, in other words, we don't have any, we have at this point a kind of conviction because we now know that this is possible. That it's possible to be in this world from another perspective. It's tricky to know to what extent this experience is a terribly, terribly elevated and mystical one or whether it's actually fairly close by, fairly available. I suspect the latter. This is a tricky issue. Uh, Buddhist institutions tend over the centuries to elevate these experiences to increasingly lofty heights and at the same time to make them increasingly the preserve of the enlightened elites, you know, the priests and the lamas and the roshis and the ajans and the buddhas of the past, they were enlightened, are enlightened, but me? Oh, no, no way. I'm just really hopeless. I feel that what the Buddha was presenting was something that was actually very available here and now for everyone. And I feel that the experience I've just spoken about will probably resonate with most of us, if not all of us, at some level. 
But in fact, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what follows from, what, from this stopping. Because we have only covered three of these four truths so far. Fully knowing dukkha leads to the dropping away of grasping, which leads to moments of stopping. And in that stopping, another possibility opens up, which is the path itself. And this is called, in, in, in Orthodox Buddhism, a sotapanna, which means entering the stream. Entering the stream. And when the Buddha is asked, well, what is this stream we enter? He says the Eightfold Path, consistently. In other words, the, um, th- th- this moment of stopping, this Nibbana, is not the goal of the practice. It's actually where the practice truly begins. It begins because that's the moment we enter the path, the Eightfold Path. And again, as I mentioned before, a path is, in some sense, um, a space that opens up for us that allows the possibility of unimpeded movement. It's not as though the path is like some, you know, one perhaps has the image of the Wizard of Oz and the yellow brick road now lies before us and all we have to do is take Wendy's hand and trot down it. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. But it is the opening up of a space within us, but a space that is a dynamic space. The problem with the metaphor of space is that it's so often static in the West. We talk of outer space. And we think then of all the things inside that outer space, all the stars and galaxies and so on. Buddhist philosophers define space as the absence of resistance, which initially might sound a bit odd. The absence of resistance. So the space in this room, for example, is what allows me to get from here to the door. There's nothing that resists my moving down that corridor out to the door. But if there were a a trip wire or a glass wall or three of you stood up and locked arms and prevented me, then that space would have gone. There would then be resistance. So the notion of space as the absence of resistance has very much to do with the opening up of a dynamic possibility. In other words, we're now free, we're unhindered, we're unobstructed from realizing what our lives could be. And that has to do with all of our life. It has to do, in the first instance, with the way we see things, the way we think about things, the way we speak and act and earn our living, the way we commit ourselves, the way we attend mindfully to what's happening, the way we focus our attention. And it doesn't stop there either. Because what is it that we are mindful of? What is it that we focus upon? Well, we turn that again into fully knowing dukkha. 
So we have in this model a feedback loop. It's not a linear process, and that's certainly a weakness of the metaphor of path. You think of it as going from A to B. It breaks down there. We're actually talking about a a feedback loop that every phase of that cycle, as it were, allows us a greater stability, a greater focus, a greater intelligence to be able to go yet deeper into this experience of being in this conditioned world with all of its anguish, with its suffering, with its beauty, with its ephemerality. And as we know that more deeply, that allows other layers of cravings onion to fall away. Other moments of stopping. A deeper access into the process itself. So the notion of enlightenment or awakening being some kind of state entirely misses the point. It's not a state at all. It's not something you either have or you don't have. But rather it's an ongoing challenge really to live according to these values, these practices and ideas from this ever opening up perspective in each moment with all the uniqueness of each moment, with each person we meet, with each situation we encounter. That is where the path unfolds. Nowhere else, not in some abstract or spiritual space, but right here and now. And I'm going to stop here. I've spoken over time. We'll meet again in uh, just under 30 minutes for our final sit. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.